Mike read to us Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 and the beginning of 8. And now what I'm going to do, I want to talk about five lessons for our church from the life and death of Stephen. A man who died a violent death in defense of the Christian faith. I'm just going to dive right in. For the first lesson, it'll take up most of the sermon. In fact, it'll be half of the sermon. And those of you who track time and you get to the end of that one and you know there's four more coming, it, it's not simple arithmetic. We'll get there in a decent time. The first lesson from the life and death of Stephen is this. It's possible to turn away from God. It's possible to turn away from God. This is precisely what Stephen accuses the Jewish leaders of. Notice in chapter 7, verse 9, where Stephen tells the Jewish leaders, he says to them, The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt, but God was with Joseph. In other words, God had singled out Joseph to lead and to deliver the family of Abraham from danger, but the family of Abraham rejected Joseph and struck out against him. Then notice verse 35, a little bit further in Stephen's speech. This Moses, whom they rejected. Now drop down to verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey Moses. They thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So Stephen is telling the history of Israel. And all along the way he highlights how Israel has a habit of rejecting God's chosen deliverer. And finally, notice the end of the sermon, chapter 7, verse 51. Here is Stephen wrapping up his sermon, and he makes the point explicit. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, how does this happen? How did God's people, Israel, this is God, these are God's people. These are God's people who had experienced a real relationship with God. A relationship of genuine love and genuine intimacy. They hadn't always been away from God. How is it that somebody can betray their spouse? Because that's the language that Jeremiah and Hosea use for this. The fancy theological term is apostasy. The relational term is an affair. They've betrayed the spouse that they had a genuine, intimate relationship with. How does that come to be? How did Israel, who had genuinely loved her Lord, how did she turn away from his relentless love for her? 
that's where it gets interesting. In Stephen's sermon, he identifies the driving force of Israel's unfaithfulness as idolatry. And specifically, they turned the temple into an idol. So this was a very long passage. And because we're in such a different place culturally, it's hard to hear how Stephen's defense is actually a defense. But you can, when you read it, realize that suddenly at the very end, things get very intense very quickly. And it's when Stephen not only says, have you been rejecting God, but he says the reason is you've made an idol out of the temple. And in that moment, they get angry, they rush at him, and they kill him. Stephen says, the Most High doesn't live in shrines like the temple. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. The entire cosmos can't contain him. How could this building on, on, in Jerusalem contain God? He made everything. How can the one who makes everything be contained by the stuff which he makes? What God wanted instead, Stephen is saying, was to come into his world as a human being to rescue his people. But like your ancestors... The Jewish leaders, you have refused the very one God appointed to deliver you. And instead of Jesus, you prefer your own handmade, homemade system and building. So let's pull back. Stephen is on trial for abandoning the faith. But he, in his defense, turns the tables and says, no. It's not me. It's, the Jew, it's you. It's my accusers. It's the judges over me who have left the faith. You've made an idol out of a gift. And that's a central point. They made an idol out of the central gift God had given them. So they took this very important gift, the temple, and they twisted it into an idol. And when they did that, it distorted their vision, it distorted their hearing, because that's the nature of an idol. To blind you and to make you, without knowing it, an enemy of God. Idols cause us to get confused about God, and then we miss God, and then we reject God. And we think we're doing the opposite. And so, often, the idol behind someone rejecting God is actually a gift of God that's been distorted. See, it's the nature of idols to blind us, and it's the nature of idols to be wrapped around gifts. And this is happening in the church today. Sex is a gift. A tremendous gift. But the church in many of its places has elevated the gift of sex to a right. A sacred right. And that's idolatry. Making sex into a right is an idolatrous move. 
to reconfigure sexual desire into a fundamental aspect of your deepest, truest, most sacred identity is to make the gift of sex into the thing that will save you into being your true self. That's idols. That's idolatry. And like the Jewish people did with the temple, it is to turn a tremendous gift into a destructive thing. And it leads to rejecting God and his ways in our world. And the same thing is happening with the wonderful virtue of tolerance. Tolerance is good. It is at the heart of Jesus' message. But when you make an idol out of tolerance, she's a cruel mistress, and you will eventually no longer tolerate even God. Now, how does Stephen deal with such a complicated scenario? He starts at the beginning and tells the story. So think about Stephen. Stephen is accused of three crimes, all of which are capital offenses, all of which if he's found guilty of, they have the death penalty attached to them. Three charges against Stephen. Charge number one, undermining the law. Charge number two, threatening the temple. Charge number three, blaspheming God. Now, how does Stephen respond to the charges when he's on trial? Well, he could have taken each charge he was facing and said, no, that's not true. And here's the evidence. Remember chapter 6, verse 13. The whole trial was a setup. These were false witnesses. So he could have argued by presenting the real evidence. He could have brought witnesses from these speeches he had given who say, no, that's not what he said. No, you're twisting it. No, that's a change of it. He could have presented the evidence that exposes the charges as fraudulent. That would have been a good option. But he doesn't. That's not what he does. A second option is he could have followed in the footsteps of Peter, who in both chapter 4 and in chapter 5, when he was put on trial, the way he dealt with it was he used the opportunity to talk about Jesus, about his cruel death and his astonishing resurrection, about the future hope of the renewal of all things, which was now coming true in Jesus. That's what Peter did. He got charged of stuff. He just ignored it and instead bore witness to the message that he was on trial for. That would have been a good option, but he doesn't choose that one either. No, Stephen chooses a third option. He says, open your Bibles to the first page. And he tells the story of the Bible. He takes the bull by the horns by telling the story, the entire story of the Bible from the beginning. This is why so much of Stephen's speech Sounds like he's not dealing with the charges. You see, instead of dealing with the charges at face value, he goes for a flanking move. He says to the Jewish leaders, if you could read the Bible this way, you'll see that everything I'm saying about Jesus is true. Now, what we see here is that there are many different ways to read the Bible. And what the Bible means will always be determined by the perspective you bring to the Bible. There is no objective standpoint to hum- for humans to read something. 
If you use the word objective to mean something like a clean and clear position where you have no presuppositions, no preconceptions, that doesn't exist. There is no objective reading of the Bible. There are no presuppositionless interpretations. Good Bible interpretation is not about getting objective so that the natural light of reason can lead you to the truth. No, that's not the way it works. Good Bible interpretation, Stephen says, is by knowing the right story the Bible tells. Good Bible interpretation is about coming to the Bible rightly subjective, rightly prejudiced, with the right set of preconceived ideas, the right set of presuppositions. To get the truth out of the Bible, you have to know the story of the Bible. The Jewish leaders missed Jesus, and they rejected him, and they rejected God, and they rejected the deliverance because they were reading the Bible through the wrong lens, because they had taken the same Bible and added it up to a different story. And you see, it's the story that the Bible tells that becomes the lens through which you read the Bible. In other words, you understand the part through the big picture in your mind. They knew all the bits and pieces, but they had put it together in the wrong way. To read the Bible well, you have to assume the right big picture of the Bible. The right story the Bible is telling. That was Stephen's argument. That's what we prayed in our collect. We prayed... Lord Almighty, you've built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus being the cornerstone. Grant us so to be joined together in the unity of spirit by their teaching. Unity in the church comes from reading the Bible the way the church has always read the Bible. You can read it in lots of other ways. This is one reason we say the creed every Sunday. Because it's the lens that we should read the Bible through. What does this have to do with us today? It's this. We need to rediscover the truth that there can be over-readings of Scripture and under-readings of Scripture and mis-readings of Scripture. And when people and traditions who have experienced a real relationship with God, a relationship of genuine love and genuine intimacy, when those people or those traditions fall into the grip of an idol, we go back to Scripture and we do the hard work of reading the Bible rightly. And with real courage, we say to them, you are wrong. You see, one of the challenges we're facing today is lots of experts are saying the Bible means this, the Bible means that. And because of the virtue of tolerance and because of a postmodern correct insight that there is no objective standpoint, we then make the wrong step to say, therefore, nobody can really be confident in their reading. And Stephen lost his life around this fact. There can be misreadings, and it's worth dying to set the record straight. We've got to rediscover real courage to insist there is a right way to read the Bible, and when we read it rightly, it exposes our idols.
We cannot lose our nerve in the face of competing interpretations. Not when the issue at hand is a distortion of God's ways in the world. A distortion that leads to the rejection of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I said, the first lesson from the life and death of Stephen would be the longest. Now let's spend the rest of our time on the remaining four lessons. Lesson number one, it's possible to fall away from God. And one of the ways this happens is through idolatry. Taking a gift from God and distorting it. And the answer to idolatry is a fresh reading of Scripture. To expose the idol so that we can repent and turn back to God. Lesson number two, no sacrifice is too great for God in his kingdom. Stephen refused to back down, and he knew where that was going. There was no doubt in his mind. It was a fait accompli. In being prepared to die for his faith, Stephen is showing us That his faith is not just a set of ideas, not just a religious glow, but it is the living truth itself. And it is worth more than his own life. There are things worse than death. There are things worse than being considered cool at school. There are things worse than not getting the promotion. And very few of us have ever had to choose between the Christian faith and death. It appears Bishop Andudu and his family have faced that kind of choice. But for so many of us, we haven't. But we have faced, and we continue to face, a different sacrifice. So many of us in this room, we have come from places where Christian people and Christian traditions who have loved God have left the faith. And I'm not talking about departing from some narrow, sectarian, fundamentalistic interpretation of the faith. I'm talking about whole denominations, whole families who have departed from the common historical tradition of belief and practice that has solidly and majestically been held by the church down through the ages. And the second lesson from the life and death of Stephen is that there is no sacrifice too great For God and his kingdom. And there are times, there are tragic moments when we must pay a high price in order to hold to the Christian truth. And sometimes entire traditions drift and fall under the deceit of an idol. And those who refuse to drift with them are charged with changing the tradition. But it's a false charge. And the price is high, but no price is too high. Lesson number one, it's possible to fall away from God in his kingdom. Lesson number two, no price is too great to stay with God and his kingdom. Lesson number three, when we are caught in one of those moments, when we are caught in this dynamic where being true to King Jesus leads to suffering, then in those moments, our suffering 
is an act of witnessing. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his followers that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then some form of that word witness is used 22 more times in the pages that follow. So what does it mean to be a witness in the book of Acts? I think a lot of us tend to think you will be my witnesses means that you're going to use your words to tell people about Jesus, about his life and death and resurrection and how people need to believe in this so that they can be saved. And that's true enough. But in the book of Acts, the word witness describes a group of people, a church, having Jesus' pattern of life, not just Jesus' words. To be a witness in the book of Acts is to embody in your life the type of life, the pattern of life that Jesus lived. And as you do this, as you, your life is shaped like the pattern of Jesus' life, when that happens, you are a witness. Now, this is not to, meant to say Witnessing has nothing to do with words. It does. We just heard a very long verbal response. There are lots of speeches in the book of Acts. In fact, more than 30% of the book consists of sermons that put the gospel into words. So being a witness does mean using words to talk about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and how that makes him the Lord and the way of salvation. But, and this is the important point for us this morning, all of those speeches in the book of Acts, they don't constitute the sum total of being a witness. No, being a witness, the book of Acts shows us that being a witness involves using words in the context of a pattern of life that shapes like Jesus' pattern of life. So to put it plainly, Stephen, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, the shape of his life is the shape of Jesus' life. And what is the shape of Jesus' life? It is cruciform. Stephen has a cruciform life. Stephen is reenacting in his own context the cruciform shape of Jesus' life. To suffer for his name. To be put on trial, to face the possibility of death, and to proclaim the resurrection, to embody the cruciform pattern that culminates in resurrection. Those of you, and this is a significant number of people in our church, it's not everybody, but it is no small number. Those of you who are suffering in order to remain true to Jesus, your suffering is a witness to Jesus You are embodying his pattern of living, which involved the cross and the resurrection. That's what Stephen did. That's what so many of you are doing. Teenagers, children, college students. Whenever being a Christian leads to suffering, whenever Walking in the Christian pattern of behavior 
leads to suffering. Whenever holding the Christian belief, whenever that leads to rejection and suffering, to being made fun of, know this. In that moment, if you could see in heaven, Christ is your defense attorney. He stands in your honor. You are witnessing to him. And that leads us to the fourth lesson. When we suffer for the king and his kingdom, the kingdom moves forward. Just like it did through Jesus' cross. Just like it did through Stephen's death. When Jesus suffered crucifixion and death, in in an irony, in a mystery, the crucifixion of Jesus was the victory of Jesus. This is what C.S. Lewis called the deep magic. God won through losing. The setback was a movement forward. The suffering, the death was the victory. And we see the same thing in the life of Stephen. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, and listen to how his death was a movement forward for the gospel. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. And they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Do you see how this persecution that suddenly overwhelmed the church was just like the cross. It was the victory. We need to rediscover that our God is sovereign and He wins by letting our opponents triumph over us. And then that triumph of the enemy in the deep magic of the kingdom moves the kingdom forward. Christianity calls us, God calls us to rediscover this truth. And if we do, we can go to our sufferings the way Stephen did. Knowing that if this turns out with our victory, it's a victory for the kingdom. And if this turns out with our loss, it is a victory for the kingdom. And this is what it's like in the kingdom. It's about the arrival of the new life of heaven within an inhospitable and downright dangerous world. 
the forward movement of the kingdom ironically goes together with our suffering for the kingdom. So lesson one, it's possible for people and institutions to fall away from God and His ways. And lesson two, when this happens, it often requires tremendous sacrifice on behalf of those who remain true to God. And lesson three, when we suffer in this way, it is fundamental to what it means to be a witness to Jesus. The suffering for Jesus is how we bear witness to Jesus. And lesson four, the sovereign God wins through this, through his deep magic. Lesson five, in these moments, Loving our enemy is non-negotiable. Again, let's pull back. Let's look at the flow of this remarkable moment in Stephen's life. He's accused of three capital crimes. He turns his defense into an attack. He says that it's the judges who stand guilty of departing from the faith, of making an idol of the temple and rejecting God's ways and God's Redeemer. In other words, Stephen, in his defense-slash-attack, is ferocious. He courageously, in a non-politically correct way, lays a serious, ferocious charge against the Jewish leaders. And then they kill him. And as they are killing him, just moments before, he's been accusatory. But while they are killing him, he shouts out a prayer at the top of his voice as rocks are flying at him and his body is being smashed and crushed. And he says, God, do not hold this against them. That's the, sixth, that's the fifth lesson. Now, there's a sixth that's wrapped up in this. We don't have time for it. It involves this remarkable vision in that moment of, the, of heaven being open and Jesus standing counsel for Stephen for his defense. I wish we had time another day. But my point with that is Stephen's prayer for God to forgive his attackers as they are killing him, this is every bit as remarkable as his miraculous vision. Here is a central insight into Christianity. Christian martyrs call down blessings on their murder, those who are murdering them. They call down blessings on their attackers. They call down forgiveness rather than cursing and judging their extortioners and their torturers. And why do they do this? Do you know that we've got many, many historical accounts of Jews at this time period and in the several centuries before who are being murdered and executed and violently tortured by Rome in the midst of their torture, saying things like this, you think you're torturing me, wait until God gets a hold of you. It will be far worse than you. This is the first time in the history of Judaism that a martyr has cried out for forgiveness of his perpetrators. Why? Only one reason. They learned it from Jesus. Jesus made 
loving your enemies, non-negotiable, central to his teaching. On the cross, Jesus himself prayed for those who had nailed him to the cross that God wouldn't hold it against them. Those of us who are suffering for the king and his kingdom, we must, in our suffering, bless our enemies. Ask God to forgive them and pray for them. So all through this, I've been saying, there's a lot of us in this church, in this place, Have you asked for your enemies to be forgiven by God? Have you stood between them and God's wrath? Have you begged God for their blessing? If you haven't, you have something to do before you come to the table. Let's pray.